Welcome to the Maine Science Podcast. I'm Kate Dickerson. Today's episode is a conversation with Jeremy Gabrielson, who is a senior conservation and community planner with Maine Coast Heritage Trust. Jeremy's experience is in planning, and he relies heavily on scientists who work in the field like wildlife ecologists, as well as ones that are focused on people and society like sociologists. Jeremy was also one part of the Warming Sea Project, and the Warming Sea team spent a morning with him exploring and learning about salt marshes in Maine. In addition to Jeremy's background, we also talked quite a bit about the Warming Sea Project. It made me even more excited for the world premiere of the symphonic piece this coming March. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jeremy, welcome to the Maine Science Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. You and I met as part of the Warming Sea Project. And I will circle back to that. And I will, I will tell you, um, your work was one of the most interesting and innovative parts of that interview process for Lucas Richmond and I. And, and like I said, we'll go back to that. But I think it would be really good to hear about how you got into the what I would call the world of science, which I'm betting you would not necessarily describe it that way. So maybe you can... <laughs> Maybe you can give us a little bit of background about how it was that your path and my path crossed a couple of years ago, how we got to that point. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and so, yeah, so my background, I, so first of all, I, I work as a conservation planner at Maine Coast Heritage Trust. And so, you know, Maine Coast Heritage Trust is a, a primarily a land trust, and we do a lot of work on, on land conservation up, you know, from Kittery to Lubeck. And um, there's a lot of that that intersects with with science, in particular ecology, um, but also a lot that intersects with, I guess, social science, uh, with community values around outdoor recreation and, you know, just scenic protection of natural resources and and things of that nature. Um, And I came to that work through a background in community planning. Um, So I I did my master's degree at the Muskie School at University of Southern Maine. And... um, Really, that's how that's how I got got, got brought into it, um, and it's it's sort of an interesting world because planning kind of sits at that intersection between between public policy and and science in a lot of ways. There's a lot of um, geospatial science. There's also a lot of soil science and and ecology that's involved in in land use planning in particular, um, as well as some social sciences around you know economics and and things of that nature. Um, and so, you know, I, I, that, that's really my, my background in science is that it's kind of at that juncture of, of public policy and, and environmental sciences. So when you say community planning, I, when I got my master's degree, I was lucky enough to do a really broad degree program and, uh, took some urban planning classes, which I thought were really cool, but as the name describes, it's super focused on, on city life. What is community planning with regards to both what you studied at the Muskie School and then what you went on to do in Washington County. Great, yeah. So um, it's it's very closely related to urban planning, um, and we we do have some some urban areas in Maine that obviously have urban planners on staff. Um, most of the folks who are working in community level planning in Maine and and frankly around the country are working in in um, or many of them are working in smaller towns and other communities. And so the focus of the degree that I got it at, at University of Southern Maine, is really sort of those aspects of planning that relate to communities of the size that we typically have in Maine. So yes, there's elements of urban planning that are in there, but also, um, you know, for me personally, I, I'm 
kind of a humanities guy. I've always had an interest in science. I, I really came to community planning from the community side of it and, and looking at, you know, what are opportunities for local economic development. Um, a lot of the work that I wound up doing with the Washington County Council of Governments after grad school um, had to do with uh, transportation planning. Uh, we did some work with the County Emergency Management Agency on emergency planning. It's really sort of a broad skill set around facilitation and sort of projecting out into the future, I guess. So how did you go from community planning to conservation planning with Maine Coast Heritage Trust? Yeah, so, it, so it's interesting. I was, I was thinking about this over the weekend, and I always appreciated one of my thesis uh, advisor in school. His, he started off as a forester and got into community planning, and his, his line was that, um, you know, he, after working as a forester for a few years, he realized that if you left him alone, the trees didn't have too many problems. And um, that's pretty good. <laughs> and, and, that's, and, and that's where his interest in getting into the community planning came from was an, an interest to understand those, you know, the, the problems that the people were causing. Um, and I really came at it from the, from the other side. I was really interested in the people um, and, and always had an interest in nature and ecology, but, but didn't really have the, the background or training in that. And the more I got to work in the community planning field, the more interested I became in understanding how what we were doing with development, with um, you know, transportation infrastructure was impacting the natural world, and what some of the the strategies that we could use to you know reduce those negative impacts are. Um, and part of that is is land conservation. It led me there. So, do you have a a project as an example, a transportation project, or another type of community planning project that you had where you where you really can explain how you left the people side, for lack of a better word, or, or, or not left the people side, Re- recognize that there are maybe, maybe go with leave the trees alone. How do we, how do we help address that kind of thing? Well, I can tell you, I guess in my work with, as a, as a planner with the um, Washington County Council of Governments, one of the projects that we worked on uh, for many years uh, was the Down East Sunrise Trail. And as that was moving through the process of becoming a trail and decommissioning the rail line. And a lot of that obviously has to do with land use and changes in land use, um, you know, the movement away or and changes in, in how we move around on the landscape um, and then being able to reuse and retrofit that existing land use, which was a abandoned rail line to, to support that recreational use for people. Um, in terms of looking at how that intersects with the work that we're doing at Maine Coast Heritage Trust um, as a land trust, one of the things that we're looking at um, is opportunities for recreation like that, but also on the natural side, there's, we have a lot of focus on what we refer to as landscape scale conservation. And so this is the idea that all of the plants and animals that we have in Maine are here because they're inhabiting the different ecological niches that we have. And over time, you know, they need to move around um, to reproduce over the life cycle of an individual um, or to maintain those populations over longer periods of time. 
And so landscape scale conservation is this idea of maintaining enough natural spaces within a given area that you can maintain the level of biodiversity that exists there. Um, one of the places that we've been doing a lot of work on that is um, in an area that we refer to as Scudic to Scudic. So this is the area from Scudic Point, um, which is part of Acadia National Park, up to Scudic Mountain in the area around um, the Donnell Pond unit in um, I always get my east-west backwards, eastern um, Hancock County. <laughs> so you're looking at that whole entire area as one big landscape for conservation in general, but for Maine Coast Heritage Trust in particular? Right. So we're looking at that as, as an area where, you know, we, we, can, we can look on the ground and see at the, at the end of the Scudic Peninsula that a lot of the species that we commonly associate with the North Woods are able to make it all the way down to the ocean um, at, at Scudic Point. Um, you know, we have otter and moose and other species that are, you know, typically associated with the North Woods. There's enough landscape connectivity to maintain populations of those animals all the way down to the ocean, which is, you know, pretty rare on the East Coast. <laughs> yeah, it's um, pretty amazing, actually. I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about. The part of Hancock County, there is one of our favorite places to go hike. I'm never not amazed at the beauty um, of all kinds. Like it's, it's stark and it's foreboding at times and it's stunningly beautiful. And I hadn't thought until you said it, I hadn't thought about how it really does. You really can get right down to the ocean if you're a critter all the way through. Right. And so, you know, the idea with landscape scale conservation is not necessarily that you buy the entire woods woods and, and conserve them. In fact, that's very much not the idea there. Um, but what we've done for conservation planning there is look at these relatively large blocks of woodlands, some of which are owned as woodlots and some of which are um, have camps or, or small houses on them and sit down with ecologists to, to look at where are, the, where are the places on the landscape that, that various species are using to move around. And, and what are the size, what are the blocks of habitat size that we would need to protect if we wanted to maintain, say, a breeding population of pine marten that could, you know, do its thing over here, but then there'd be enough connection to get around the landscape to other parts of the, the, of the Scooter Peninsula that wouldn't be permanently conserved. And so what we've done is devise that a conservation strategy that identifies these sort of stepping stones, if you will, of, of conserved habitat blocks, and then working with towns and DOT to try and pay attention to how those connect with appropriate roadway crossings, um, because that's a major, roads are a major fragmenting feature for a lot of species. So is your expertise and, and talents and what you bring to the social science aspect of it, and if so, how hard has it been, if at all, to make sure that you understand the language of the soil science and the other stuff so that you're not, you don't feel like you're behind in these conversations? Because I would imagine with some ecologists in some other places, they either have to rein in their jargon or you have to meet them halfway. Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. And it's, it's frankly, it's a little bit of both. So I, I did not come into this job with a, I came into this job with a lot of interest in ecology and natural history, but not a lot of formal training or background in it. 
And a lot of what I do is working with our project managers and stewards who are actually working on purchasing land and conserving it in the long term. And I kind of act as the bridge, (laughs) if you will, um, because they're so busy with their day-to-day jobs that the value that I'm able to bring is to go out and talk to a lot of the scientists and ask them the questions that we need to know the answers to so that we can figure out how to go from those broad general concepts to what we're going to do on this about this individual parcel that's in front of us today. And so my background is is really it's really a lot of science communication and it's really a lot of me asking questions and trying to understand context around conservation projects some of which is is that ecology piece and some of it is is other other things that we're worried about or, or thinking about. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up the social science aspect because I I never remember that part. I think partly because my background and my training is in chemistry and then environmental work and policy. And I've always been on that side of science, but I find the other part really fascinating. I just, it's almost like art and music. I don't entirely understand it. So I, <laughs> I forget that I should think about it more. Yeah, I think the social science piece is uh, honestly, and in particular in rural communities, it's it's really interesting. Um, it's really interesting um, how people. I find it really interesting how people come together and, and make decisions, and and what they value and how that influences the way that they think about whether it's you know a land protection project or um, some of the other work that we do around sea level rise has to do with. Um, tidal restrictions and, and bridges and, you know, how do you decide what the best course of action is for this road that people rely on for transportation, but that's also negatively impacting a marsh upstream from it, for example. And I think the social science there is, it's really, there's some really great science and engineering that happens around those projects. And, and the social science piece of it is, is just as important in, in, in trying to understand, you know, what the likely outcomes are going to be and how you, how you can um, work with people to get to the best, you know, best outcome. Have you been surprised at the partnerships that have come up in some of the rural parts of the country around something like a road and, and or access to... I don't know, traditional hunting land or hiking? Like, has there been an alliance of interest group that you were surprised happened? I guess, I, I don't know that I'd characterized it as surprised, but I, there, there's, I, I would say my experience working in conservation is that there is a very broad base of support for conservation in Maine um, from, that spans from you know, more urban parts of the state to, to more rural parts of the state, and, and, and sometimes for different reasons, but still a, a strong sense of valuing access to natural places um, and support for that work. Uh, we, we have um, recently, uh, some of my colleagues at Maine Coast Heritage Trust through a group of um, educational institutions and land trusts known as the Down East Conservation Network um, have been working on a project with some towns and and communities um, in Eastern Maine to sort of better understand and and the issues around uh, property tax impacts associated with with land conservation. That's an issue that's been of interest and concern for a lot of rural communities for a while. And I think one of the more eye-opening 
moments for me in that process was uh, this was before COVID. So it's a couple of years ago now. I'm sitting down with a group of, of 40 or 50 local elected officials in Washington County and, and really hearing them say kind of one after one, you know, well, we don't have a problem with constant. We like conserved land. We like the accident. You know, the problem we have is balancing the budget <laughs> for the town. Yeah. And that intersects, I think it's really important to pay attention to those issues because, you know, we do need to balance the town budgets as well. Yeah, we don't, there's no fantasy world in which that isn't a worry. As I mentioned earlier, you were uh, our, our guide um, with Lucas Richmond and I, mostly Lucas, about explaining the value and the incredible importance of salt marshes to uh, climate change and, and rising sea level sea levels across the state as part of the Warming Sea Project. I will say you were the only, you were our second, what I would call field trip. Um, so we got to go out in Casco Bay with the friends of Casco Bay on their boat. And then with you, we got to tromp around in a salt march. I loved both of those experiences for totally different reasons. Um, I know Lucas and I both learned a lot, but I was hoping you could explain kind of like you did for us, why salt marshes are so much more than they appear to be when you're just looking at them uh, and how valuable they are and and why it's so important. Great. Well, and yeah, I have to say, I don't get to drop around in salt marshes with the film crew every day. So I had a heck of a lot of fun doing that too. <laughs> <laughs> it was so much fun. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so salt marshes. Um, so to, to answer the question, um, salt marshes are, First of all, relatively rare in Maine. We have some rel relatively large for Maine um, salt marshes in southern Maine around Scarborough Marsh. But overall in Maine, we only have about 22,000 acres of salt marsh in the state. So if you compare that to the, you know, 4 million acres of the North Woods, it's, it's a relatively small land area. But um, they play a really important role in the ecology of, of our coastal and marine ecosystems. So a lot of the species that we depend on that are commercially important species from clams and lobster and, and a variety of fin fish that people eat all depend on salt marshes for some portion of their life cycle. Sorry, I'm yeah. gonna, I, it yeah. occurred to me, I didn't define what a salt marsh is. Sure. <laughs> so could you do that too? And then you can circle back to, the super yeah. importance of it. That would be really yeah. helpful. Thanks. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I know it's, it's interesting because I, I sometimes even talk about this with my, my kids who are probably sick of hearing me talk about salt marshes. Um, but yeah, so, so salt marshes are a type of wetland um, that exists, you know, in between sort of the, where the tide gets up to on an average day and the highest tides of the year. Um, so, and so they're, they're on the edge of the, you know, right, right at the edge of the salt water and, and, and the land, they're the interface between the land and salt water. And the most typical salt, salt marshes in Maine that people will often see um, are Spartina salt marshes. And so they're these relatively flat areas of just this vibrant green grass in the summertime um, that fades to lovely swirling brown patterns in the wintertime. That's the one we saw, right? That's the one we saw, yeah. yeah. But uh, there, of course, there's all kinds of other wetlands, including freshwater wetlands that sometimes people also refer to as marshes. But specifically what we're looking at 
with regard to sea level rise are these salt marshes that really have to live right in this narrow band between mean high water, the high tide on an average daily basis and the highest annual tide. And so you were saying, this is the part that I found really amazing when you took us out there was, was the, the species that are just so deeply dependent on this place that honestly looks like a bunch of grass underwater. I mean, yeah. right. If you go look at it, it, it's not something where you're like, really lobsters, clams. I mean, it's, yeah. it's not intuitive at all. So yeah, if you could explain that a little bit, that would be awesome. Sure. Yeah. So, so there's a, there's a variety of species, a lot of species benefit from salt marshes. Um, and then, and then there are a handful of plants and animals that really only live um, in salt marshes or really depend on them for a large portion of their life cycle. And, and a big part of that is that even though it just looks like a bunch of grass, um, these are really, really productive ecosystems. And so when we say productive, what that means is, you know, there's a lot of nutrients that are being converted into plant matter. There's a lot of biological activity happening there. And so that, that productivity means there's a lot of food <laughs> for, for small critters like, you know, clam, little, little tiny clam, clams and mussels and other um, shellfish to, to eat. And, and also the, the grasses provide cover um, for animals that are, you know, looking to not get eaten. <laughs> <laughs> and so why was it that this was such an important place for us to see with regards to the warming sea and rising climate, rising waters and climate change. Great. Yeah. So, so as I mentioned, uh, one of the challenges for salt marshes is that they have to, they, they exist in this relatively narrow elevation band between, you know, that's dictated by the tides and that's historically not been a huge challenge for salt marshes because a because sea levels are relative have been relatively stable over the last 5000 years or so in Maine and b because um, salt marshes have this incredible ability to create their own land <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the reasons that that you walk out and you look at a salt marsh and it's flat is because as the plants grow they're they're actually trapping sediment from the water column and incorporating that into their root structure to create what we call peat. Um, and that builds up in elevation over time. And so the, in a sense, they're really creating their own environment or, or shaping their own environment. And as over the last hundred years or so, as we've seen relatively moderate amounts of sea level rise, they've been able to keep up with that sea level rise by accreting soil by building elevation. And one of the, the critical questions over the next hundred years is, it, will they be able to, as sea level, the rate of sea level rise increases, will those plant communities be able to keep up with sea level rise or not? The jury's still out on that um, in large part because we don't know what the rate of sea level rise is going to be. And so uh, what we have done as a land trust Maine Coast Heritage Trust has done is work with a range of partners around the state to, to really understand where are the places, if the marshes can't go up, where are the places where they can go back? <laughs> so, so as sea level rises, if there's low-lying land behind an existing salt marsh, 
and that land is undeveloped, that, that gives a, a, a space for those plants to move into. As the sea level, as the sea rises, the, the salt from the, the seas will kill off trees or other freshwater plants that live there. And the, and the salt marsh grasses can move into that. That's what we refer to as marsh migration. So the, the place that I got to go out with, with you and Lucas um, is an area called Jones Marsh on Mount Desert Island. Um, and this is one of about 50 places up and down the coast that Maine Coast Heritage Trust has identified using data from the Maine Natural Areas Program where there are existing salt marshes that have enough undeveloped land around them at the right elevation for those marshes to be able to move inland um, as the sea level rises. And, um, you know, we all hope that they can also keep up with sea level and we wind up with more marshes in the future. But, um, but this the strategy of protecting what we call the migration zone or migration space um, is sort of a way to hedge our bets and make sure that even if the marshes don't keep up with sea level rise, that they'll still have, there'll still be a place that they can, where those plants can, and animals can live. Is 50 a lot, a little? I mean, my sense is it's a lot because we're talking about places on the coast, um, on salt water. And so in many of these marshes, you know, we're really talking about having multiple landowners that we would, that we're trying to reach out to and, and, and either talk to them about options for conserving that marsh, whether that's a con, you know, a conservation easement, which would prevent development um, in the area, the migration space or, or purchasing a, a part of the, or all of the property. Obviously as a land trust, or maybe not obviously, <laughs> as a land trust, we're always having these conversations with private landowners and it's always a, uh, a willing seller transaction. So it takes a lot of, of work to, to go out and figure out which landowners you want to be talking to and then start having those conversations around what they what they hope to see happen with their land in the future. Um, and does Maine, I, I have some vague recollection that you said Maine is in a relatively unique situation with regards to these saltwater marshes because there hasn't been a lot of development on them as opposed to other places along the East Coast so that Maine Coast Heritage Trust has found a, a fairly large opportunity to really utilize these as uh, you said, hedge your bets. Um, other words that have been used in the past by people to explain this is to mitigate or to at least try to have some type of buffer so that the impacts of rising waters aren't quite as much. Is it is it true that Maine is different than many other places along the East Coast for that? Yeah, certainly um, as compared with other places in the Northeast, um, it's very much the case that, that Maine is in a, a good position. I think the, the, the benefit that we have in Maine is that we do have a lot of undeveloped area still around many of our marshes um, where Pursuing conservation there makes sense both for protection of the resource and response to sea level rise, but also because the alternative is that if someone develops that land, then you've got houses or other development that is vulnerable to sea level rise in the relatively near future. So there's really a range of benefits and, and we have good opportunities to do that work. If you think about, for example, driving down to, um, to Logan Airport. Um, and there's some wonderful marshes that you pass 
not, you know, you can see them from, from route one when you're heading down, <laughs> heading down through Boston. Um, but those marshes don't really have anywhere to go other than up. Um, there's so much development around them that if they're, if we're going to have marshes there in the future, they really need to be able to keep pace with sea level rise. There's the opportunity for marsh migration is very limited. And we're, we're fortunate in Maine that that's not the case. We have, we certainly have some area, some marshes that have development that's limiting where, you know, where they can go in the future, but we have a lot of opportunity to protect the, those spaces as well. So you work on more than just marshes, right? You're Absolutely. Here. <laughs> so what else, uh, I mean, I just focused on that because that was the road trip. What else, um, what else is in your purview? Yeah, so so we do so um, at Maine Coast Heritage Trust, we do a lot of work around. I do a lot of work around um, recreation and community um, conservation. Um, this is something that has been important for land trusts for a while, but we haven't maybe always done um, the best job of of either explaining it or, or or thinking about it. And so a big part of my job is helping to figure out, you know, how can we conserve land that's going to be you know, ecologically important, like marshes for migration or those landscape scale conservation projects, but also important for people. And um, and the interesting thing is we've been doing a lot of work around trying to figure that out is in some, sometimes it's the same parcel, <laughs> but but many times it's not, you know, the places that that, that are good for people are, are often, you know, closer to where people live. Um, so they tend to be maybe smaller parcels, um, and um, and also, uh, you know, as a community, there's been a growing awareness within the land trust movement that, you know, I think we started out in the 20th century as, as a lot of, you know, fairly affluent white folks who like to go walk in the woods. Um, and that's not how everyone experiences nature, um, and nor should it be. Um, and so there's a lot of of work and conversations going on in the land trust community to think about, really consciously think about how can we protect um, uh, places that are important for, you know, everyone, a, a broad cross section of people to be able to to have those experiences in nature, not just people who want to go for a hike. Um, and so for us, what that often means is looking at places that are closer to town, um, but also prioritizing places where there's opportunities for other activities. So places that have access to the water, for example, um, are great places either to go swimming or go fishing. Um, and also places that have sort of an open area or a gathering space where you can, you know, I think one of the challenges with with land trust properties often is, you know, it's a trail. And so you can only bring, you know, five or six people in a row before you start to crowd it. Um, but, you know, what if you have a dozen or more people in your family? <laughs> um, and so very often the more of those open gathering spaces um, tend to be more inclusive, especially for folks who have larger families or multi-generational families. So it sounds almost like a park, like, like the, yeah. like I'm thinking, you know, when parks became a thing back with Central Park and these other places, the respite from the city almost. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and sometimes for us, that means that we are purchasing a piece of land um, that 
we own and that, that essentially functions as a park. Um, we have a great preserve in Millbridge um, called Millbridge Commons, which serves that, that role um, there. But sometimes it means um, working either with the town or with the, the, the state to, to purchase a piece of land, which we then transfer to the, you know, either the town or the state and they run it as a park um, because they have the opportunity, okay. you know, the resources to do that. This might be too much in the weeds, but yeah. that is one of those things I don't understand is yeah. why a land trust purchases it and then gives it to the town as opposed, is it just I, like, as opposed to the town purchasing it? I'm sure there's a reason for it. I, I don't mean that. I just, I, yeah. it's one of those things I don't understand how it works. Well, from, from our pers- well, I'll start from the, the town's perspective or the state's perspective. Um, so a, a lot of the towns that we work with um, are small towns and they have limited staff capacity and, and, and don't necessarily have staff who do real estate transactions regularly. Um, so oftentimes the role that we're able to provide is essentially the role that we provide for our own acquisitions, which is making sure that the money comes in on time, the deeds get signed and everything you know, happens the way that it has to happen for a, a legal land sale. And, um, and, and that can be a really valuable role. I know um, a couple of years ago, we did a project with the town of East Machias where we, we played that role um, to protect a, a sledding hill in town that was really important locally. And you know, East Machias is a great community, but they have limited staff capacity. And, and so we were able to help provide that. Um, other times it's more has more to do with um, the availability of funding or the ability to move quickly. Um, so we've done a number of projects, for example, in partnership with Acadia National Park um, or the main Bureau of Parks and Lands, where um, they've identified a place that's a priority for them. Um, just last week, for example, we we um, closed on a sale to, we had purchased an island um, that we then transferred to the state of Maine that's associated with Rope Bluff State Park. And, and they just the, the state wanted to own it. They just didn't have the, the ability to act quickly enough um, with the landowner to make that initial sale happen. And we were willing to purchase it, hold it, wait for the state to have the funding in hand to buy the island and then transfer it to them. So this happens, I'm going to guess, because... Maine Coast Heritage Trust has been around long enough that it has established itself as an, both an honest broker, but a solid partner in these types of things so that people know that they can come to you and you can serve these roles and that it's not, you know, I would imagine if you were a three-year-old organization, it would be much harder to do something like this because there's no track record. Yeah, certainly the the ability to have long-term partnerships and folks that we've worked on over a period of years helps. Um, but it's, I, I mean, I, I it would be unfair to imply that, you know, other land trusts working in Maine don't do the same thing. Um, oh, no, no, I don't mean that. I just mean no, this, is yeah. the, this is the value of a long-standing community-based organization Absolutely. that has been doing this for a long time. It's both institutional knowledge, but it's also the fact that you've proven over and over and over again that you can do this. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I would imagine this would, this would be, if you had a brand new land trust, it would, it would be helpful for them to partner with someone like you to get 
under their, to get their feet under them. And I'm, this is total conjecture at this point that may not make any sense, but you know, like, well, I, I, I think that's right. But, but, and I, I would also add that, you know, there, there's also a, you know, we're one of, I think 80 ish land trusts in Maine. Um, and so this is a role that a lot of, a lot of land trusts play in their local communities too. I, I just probably make somebody upset if I pick any one example, but I, uh, you know, just, just thinking of one off the top of my head, I know that um, Kennebec Estuary Land Trust um, in Bath has done a lot of work with the city of Bath on the, you know, where, where there are some properties that they own um, up by Thornhead and others where they've worked with the city to transfer ownership to the city. Just as one example, there's dozens of other. Yeah. I I find the land trust thing, a remarkably cool model and and not one that I have encountered in a lot of other places that I've lived. And I don't know if that's because I was oblivious to it, which is definitely an, uh, an, uh, an option, or if it's just because there is just, it's so ingrained in the way that people look at the land here and the community and how long they've been around. I, I think it's a mix of the two. Um, we certainly have a very robust land trust community in Maine um, that has done a lot of a lot of great work, um, and and I think it's also just sort of ingrained in the way that we relate to land in Maine. Um, you know, a lot of people value access to the land, whether it's for you know hiking or or hunting or fishing or, or you know snowmobiling, a wide range of activities, um, and so. Maintaining that level of access is important to a lot of Mainers. I want to go back to you said you do a lot of studies to figure out what people want for land, <laughs> right? You know, like the large group, a place where large groups can gather. I love the fact that you helped preserve uh, Sledding Hill. Um, I think that's really cool. How do you how do you figure that out? Do you do community workshops, community studies? Like what? That's the that's that social science part. I think that. It's yeah. easy to forget needs to happen. Yeah, it's, I mean, that, that, that's a great question. And yes, it's, it is the social science piece. Um, part of it is looking to research that's happening at the national and international level. Um, there's a lot of great work um, from landscape architects and park designers looking at, you know, what sorts of spaces do people, different people feel comfortable in or not. And particularly, um, there's been a lot of look, a, a lot of work recently out of um, California and out of the Mid Atlantic, looking at, you know, how do different demographic groups relate to different spaces, and and that that's really you know not research that we're we're doing so much as as referring to what others have learned. Um, we, I also spend a lot of time looking at what local communities say they want. Um, so most towns in Maine have, have developed comprehensive plans um, where they've laid out, at least in broad strokes, uh, you know, sketches of places, the types of places that are important to them and what they would like to see. Um, and then we do a lot of listening too. So so we own a, actually don't even, not sure that I even know the current number of preserves, but we, we own a, about 10,000 acres, a little bit more than 10,000 acres up and down the coast. Um, and as part of managing the land that we own, we, we regularly have listening sessions with, you know, folks who live nearby uh, to really understand how they're using the preserves that we own and manage. Um, and as part of that, we often hear about other 
needs that they have that are unmet in the, in the community um, or other types of activities that they wish they could do here, but it's not appropriate. And, and so we, we learn a lot um, from, you know, just listening to people as well. Do you think it's at all easier that all you have to worry, worry about is, um, is the coast? <laughs> um, I mean, I guess... Uh, I'm not. Sh- I'm not even sure how to answer that question. It's it's a big it's a big bit to worry about. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, part th- the value of focusing on the coast for us um, is not only you know that there it's it's such an iconic part of the Maine experience, and and there are both so many great places for people as well as as animals and and biodiversity, but it it is really the part of Maine where there's the most development pressure is really along the coast as as well as, as inland lakes and and parts of the Western mountain. And, and so that's where we really start to see the threat of development encroaching on natural habitats and access that types of access that people have relied on in Maine for generations. I don't, I I don't know that that makes it easier. Yeah. I was kind of kidding when I said easier, just, you know, I, I just read, and I knew this, but I just read, you know, we have 3,000 miles of coastline, right? When you, that's crazy, right? Like that's, that's from here to California. It is a crazy amount of really diverse environment within that 3,000 miles, right? And that's just one little tiny sliver of me. So yeah, um, absolutely. I can't imagine trying to manage more than that. So <laughs> um, I think you have more than your hands full. I don't have any, a whole lot of other follow-up questions other than if you don't mind maybe talking a little bit about how interesting, how weird, how odd, how different from your normal course of action it was to talk to a composer to try to explain climate change. I think that would be really interesting. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't imagine that that is something that you get to do very often with your job. No, it, it really, it really isn't. Um, and I think, you know, for me, that's one of the fun things with m- the Marsh Migration Project is I don't think that most people wake up thinking about marshes most of the time, but it's been really interesting to see uh, and come to understand a lot of the different connections that we have to marshes, even though they're places that we don't really put a lot of value on in, in the modern world. Um, they were hugely valuable in the 19th century. People harvested salt hay from them, and that's literally how they powered their economy. Um, and so we've been learning a lot about, you know, I've been learning a lot about history and how the distribution of salt marshes influenced settlement patterns in coastal Maine. And, uh, you know, we've recently started talking with some folks who, in the Maine's Wabanaki communities who harvest sweetgrass on the on the edges of Maine salt marshes. And there's all these historical and cultural connections to these places. And, and so, you know, getting to go out with you and, and Lucas um, was, was one more certainly interesting <laughs> connection and, and way to, to think about it. And, and I think it was, you know, it, it's, it's interesting me, to me to think about how this is a, uh, an important part of the landscape and one that is changing um, on a scale of time that you can see or, or measure in the span of a human life. And, and that's unusual. Um, and I think, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to hearing 
what what Lucas has come up with. I, I, you know, I, I think that you can convey some of that sense of movement in in music um, better than you can with imagery. Um, and so I'm really I'm really interested to hear to hear that and see you know see how that comes across. Yeah, I am too. I know very little about the piece, some of it on purpose and some of it just because of the way uh, the last the last 20 months have gone. But I will say that our our conversation with you was one of the ones that he and I kept coming back to from the perspective of the impact on the climate on something that we didn't know that we should care about, but also how vital it was. Um, and I think that that's, I'm hopeful that what comes out of Lucas's piece is people hear they hear this vitality and this importance that he had to weave together, which honestly, I still don't know how he did it, but that's for him to figure out. Um, so I think I, I really appreciated your time with that and for taking these like true newbies who had no idea what was going on and explaining all of it. Um, much like just now, I think you've done a really great job explaining your work and, and this intersection of social science and, ecological approaches and um, just a broader view of how we address ensuring that the land stays where everybody can use it, not just people. I think it's, um, it's a really, you have a really cool job and I've enjoyed what little bit we've been able to talk up to about. I think it's been really fascinating. Well, thank you. I, I've really enjoyed talking about it with you out in the field and today. Thanks for listening to the Maine Science Podcast. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a rating and review. It will help more people find us and help spread the word about some of the remarkable people doing science in Maine. The Maine Science Podcast is recorded at Discovery Studios, Maine Discovery Museum in Bangor, Maine. It is produced and edited by me, Kate Dickerson. I receive production support from Miranda Bouchard and social media support from Next Media. The Discover Main theme was composed and performed by Nick Parker.